This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. If I sound funny, and I don't mean ha-ha funny, um, it's because I'm recording this from New York. If I sound low energy, it's because I'm low energy. I had um, trouble sleeping. Last night, I've been having trouble sleeping a lot lately, and it's vexing me. Um, No reason to get into the uh, weeds, but it is what it is. And I got to go catch a train not too far from now, so I'm going to try to be expeditious and efficient um and at least and i will try to maintain some of my uh um expected effulgency in um my explications as i try to um maximize my alliteration and yes this is just basically the equivalent of me saying red leather yellow leather as i figure out what i'm going to talk about i guess i should start with the news that joe biden is planning on announcing he is running for president next week this is a little inconvenient for me. And it's a good reminder of why I shouldn't make bets and predictions and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was getting a little cocky lately because it felt like a lot of my predictions were coming true on a bunch of different fronts. And, um, and I got worked up from a bunch of different people that I respect and admire who were also convinced or increasingly convinced. I don't think I ever said flat out, that Biden wasn't going to run. Maybe I did. And if I did, I if I, if I, even if I didn't, I kind of gave that impression that I was more confident than I should have been. Um, I just thought it was, it was more likely than people were giving, uh, than, than people were allowing for. Um, and I still think it's very possible he won't be the nominee. Um, but that now depends mostly on a, um, on, some sort of tragic or unpleasant uh, health issue. And, and who wants to make predictions based on that kind of thing? That's kind of ghoulish. Um, or just some sort of realization that he's not up to it, which I do think is the case. Um, but so he is announcing next week. If he doesn't end up announcing next week, then disregard everything I said here. But um and look, I just, you know, because I said this on TV last night, you know, in 2016, we had a race between the most unpopular politician in America and the second most unpopular politician in America. And they were such bad candidates that each had a, a statistically significant chance of losing to the other. And we're heading into a similar scenario again. Donald Trump, I don't care how high you get on your sort of Twitter farts, Donald Trump's just not popular. But then again, neither is Joe Biden. Now, now, Joe Biden is unpopular within generally normal parameters, while 
Trump is unpopular in sort of historic parameters uh, or, or, or abnormal parameters, but it's still the same dynamic. People who say it's obvious that Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump if Donald Trump is the nominee, which again, I don't necessarily think is going to happen, but of course Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden. Simply by virtue of being one of the two major party nominees, you have some chance of beating the other party. You know, I've made this point a million times before, but the people who say Biden can beat Trump again because uh, he has the playbook, he knows how to do it. It's just, it's just a nonsense talking point. Um, he's got certain advantages now that he didn't have in 2020. It's always good to be the incumbent president, but he also has certain disadvantages. He cannot plausibly run a campaign from his basement again. You know, Biden kind of successfully ran a front porch campaign in 2020, but he had an excuse, uh, the pandemic. Um, he doesn't have that excuse anymore. He also has a record as president that, you know, cuts both ways, but it just it's just very different from not having a record as president um, when you're running for office. So people were cavalier about how Biden can, including Biden himself, who by all reports has convinced himself he's the one guy who can beat Trump. The hubris involved in all of this is, is really kind of disturbing to me. And, you know, I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities to explain why uh, Trump back in office would be singularly disastrous for the Republican Party, disastrous for the country um, in ways that even his first term weren't. And to be sort of blithe about this or, you know, there's this there's this theory out there that a lot of people have. And, and I obviously I share it to one extent or another. Nick Cotogio wrote about it a bit um, in yesterday's Boiling Frogs newsletter, which people really should subscribe to. You know, there's this, anyway, there's a theory out there that, you know, the mainstream media wants Trump to be uh, the nominee again because it's just banner ratings and all that kind of stuff. I, I kind of think that the, you know, the versions of that theory that, that, that wander over into what you might call vulgar Marxism, that it's just simply the um, greed factor of, of the mainstream media because he's, you know, he helps sell, um, sell soap and pillows and whatnot. Um, I'm not sure I buy that as much as some people do. Obviously, there's always going to be some truth to that. There's always, you know, if you have ideological or psychological motivations they are always amplified if you can make more money from them, right? Um, you know, but I don't think money alone explains it. I think it's that uh, there's just a whole bunch of people who are just addicted to um, the drama of it all. Um, and they're particularly, you know, they're, they're, they're people obviously who are in love with Trump, but there are also just lots of people who are obviously who obviously hate Trump, um, you know, full disclosure, I do not have any warm feelings towards the guy myself, um, but they just need him to be around because they've forgotten how to talk about other things. And I'm, I know there are a bunch of people out there who would make the same accusation of me. If you go back and you read the things I've written um, over the last two years, I just don't think it's a particularly fair um, accusation, but, you know, there are probably times when I let my anger about what's happening to the GOP get away from me. Anyway, I think the pure profit motive explanation for the mainstream media 
is often overdone and you kind of have to overdo it the second you bring it up in the first place. You know, it's sort of like a loose tooth. I mean, I remember when you used to have loose teeth and it hurt like hell um, to play with it, but you couldn't stop playing with it. Maybe I've just revealed something about myself um, or picking at scabs or whatever. There's just something about dwelling on Trump that is very difficult for people to quit. Um, and Trump, you know, some of this has to do with Trump's own sort of, you know, uh, lizard brain um, cleverness about staying in the news. And some of it has to do with the fact that it's kind of captivating to watch someone with no sense of shame operate at such a high level. It's really bad news, I think, for the country um, if we end up with a, another Biden-Trump race. And I still wouldn't bet that that's where we're heading. But then again, I am moving away from betting at all about things. Oh, speaking of betting, so I mischaracterized on the episode with Christine Rosen, I mischaracterized, or I, I misspoke about the difference between a parlay bet and, um, and a trifecta bet or an exacta bet and all that kind of stuff. Trifectas and exactas are in horse racing. They're the bets within the race, uh, within a specific race. Um, and um, a parlay is where you bet uh, on the results of two or more um, different races. I, I used it correctly in the conversation I had on um, the Dispatch podcast or the High Stakes podcast that I joined uh, yesterday. But um, anyway, I, I know I misspoke. I, I understand what these things are. I like going, uh, I, I've been to the track quite a few times. Not recently though, I should really go back. Me and some buddies of mine, we used to go out to Laurel quite a bit. And um, I think it's still one of the more fun ways to drink during the day um, and, and throw your money away. Oh, on this, so, uh, you know, I, I didn't talk about it on here, but I wrote... Um, a G file. What was it? Last week, two weeks ago. Um, for those of you who um, are close students of this August podcast, you might recall I did. Um, I had one of my favorite conversations of the last couple of years with um, Yuval, where we talked about Edmund Burke and his. It's not called his Birds of Prey speech, but his argument, his Birds of Prey argument. It's been in my head, sort of. It was, well, the whole reason I wanted Yuval on, it was it already gotten in my head, but then I wanted, and then Yuval pushed it deeper into my head. Anyway, so I picked up on this theme of Burke's um, a couple of weeks ago in the G file. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, so to sort of summarize, you know, the, the most important um, work that Burke did, according to Burke himself, was his work on the, the, the Hastings impeachment trial and his um, broader efforts at reform um, in the East India Company. He obviously cared about the British Empire's abuses of colonial subjects in, in India. It was always a major part of his motivations. But he, he added an argument that I just think is just supremely important in all sorts of contexts, which was that when you do terrible things to other people, you also do terrible things to your own soul. You, the, the, the process by which you give yourself permission to be um, ugly, brutal, cruel, um, arrogant, 
uh, towards others also is deformative of your own character. And so part of Burke's argument was that these young men, sometimes even just boys, this is again sort of paraphrasing Burke, who went off to start their careers as, you know, either uh, officials or military or, or serve in the military in, in the, in India, they were so obsessed with making their career, making their money, um, extracting resources from the local population that they were a sort of like birds of prey who swoop in, grab what they want and then leave. And his, part of Burke's argument was is that these young men were learning what it means to be an officer, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be part of the English or the British elite. And they were taking those lessons and going to bring them home to England. And it was going to transform English society and make it coarser, crueler, and more corrupt because these, these kids, in effect, were getting a, the wrong idea of what we might call or what McKinsey types might call uh, best practices, right? They were deforming their own souls. And uh, that insight, you know, it, the reason why it set off a bell in my head is, is that, like, I made a lot of mistakes in my 20s, in my 30s. Some would say in my 40s and my, my early 50s. Uh, and I definitely made a lot of mistakes in my teens. You know, and one of the motivations I have when I sort of try to scold or counsel or simply correct young people, specifically in this context, young conservatives, is um, I can see when they're walking down a bad path, right? Um, I know, uh, like, Nate Hockman is convinced that I'm, or his fans are, at least, at least though they tell me that I have some sort of vendetta and want to cancel him. And there's all this Bethany Mandel nonsense from back in the day. Um, none of it was true. I like the kid. And I think he's got a lot of potential. But I think he's making a lot of bad, he was making a bad, a lot, a lot of bad intellectual um, and ideological choices. But, you know, he's in much better shape than a lot of these people I don't know, right? This is why I got into a bat with the, uh, college, uh, the, the New York City young Republican, or the New York young Republicans and the Washington DC young Republicans, who, if you just go by their statements on Twitter, I mean, just look up their accounts, they're jackasses. And they think it's cool to be a jackass. Uh, they think it's cool to be crude, bullying, uh, insulting. And I think it's terrible for them, you know? And I also think it's terrible for the Republican Party and for conservatism. There's this... Uh, uh, bull moose uh, group, which I just think is hilarious for all sorts of complicated intellectual history kind of reasons that the Heritage Foundation is supporting that, uh, and they're having some event this weekend. And if you go by some of the stuff that's been pointed out about them on Twitter, you know, it's, they're nuts. And they're, they are, they're part of this sort of young movement of young conservatives who think talking like the young thugs of some new burgeoning junta that when they get into power, they're going to clear away the likes of you and blah, 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 blah. They think talking like that is a sign of manliness and strength. And, um, and you're just finding this stuff all over the place, right? I mean, this was always my complaint about the Michael Anton 
uh, or one of my complaints about the Michael Anton, you know, Flight 93 election is that certain arguments give you permission to abandon all moderation, all self-restraint, all um, limiting principles in favor of, uh, you know, politics as the crow flies, expediency, ends justifying the means, Alinskyite, you know, sort of tactics and that kind of thing. And um, it seems like every couple days, there's somebody writing some article or tweeting some nonsense um, that uh, if you were a historian looking back 50 years from now, you would say, well, this is how it happened. Is these people gave themselves permission to do um, all those terrible things um, in the lead up to, you know, Trump getting back into office or whoever getting back into office. Because, I mean, I think some of these animal spirits don't rely necessarily on just Trump being in office. There's a piece, you know, and, and for all I know, the guy who wrote it is just a sincere, wonderful person. I have no idea. Never heard of him before. But there's a piece in um, the American Conservative called, and I'm not making this up, and it's not satire, right? It's learning from Vlad the Impaler. The American people need a champion who's willing to be the bad guy. It's just a sort of a astounding exercise in giving a whole move or trying to give a whole movement permission to be cruel. I mean, like Vlad the Impaler, right? He 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 was cruel and vicious, right? That's the whole point of this thing. I'm not gonna read you the whole thing, but I'll start from here. If one can see past the violence, <laughs> yes. Lots of things are possible once you can see past the violence. If one can see past the violence, there are important similarities between Vlad Dracula's situation and America today. Much like the Ottoman Turks dominated their days, politics and cultures, leftist globalist elites dominate the politics and culture of today. Much like how the Voivodes, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, and, and Boyars cave to the demands of the Sultan, Almost every large institution today complies with the agenda of these elites. And much like the Romanian nobility demonized the populist Dracula at the behest of the Sultan, today's institutions demonize the populist Trump at the behest of the leftist elites. And then he says, next paragraph, this analogy sheds light on what makes Trump so unpopular. He's a threat to the current system of leftist intimidation and elite privilege. As Christian Parenti recently argued in Compact, I roll, uh, Trump is hated because he opposes foreign intervention, globalist trade agreements, outsourcing manufacturing, mass immigration, and leftist hypocrisy. Like other conservatives, he was supposed to comply with the elite class's agenda while making superficial gestures to placate his working class base. Instead, he immediately ripped up trade agreements closed down military bases, secured the border, and told the foreign policy establishment to take a hike. The policy equivalent of creating Vlad's forest of the impaled. Now, again, this guy, I'm sure he's sincere. I'm sure he's a nice guy. This is all nonsense. I mean, look, and this is not just his nonsense. This is, you know, very popular nonsense. First of all, this idea... The compact is really big in on that a lot of these people that I'm reading Patrick Deneen's book, there are all these people who want to argue that Trump is unpopular with the left 
because of his bold, strong, and sincere policy positions. Now, obviously, some of that is true, but it's a pretty minor part of the psychological motivations as far as I can tell. I mean, on trade, the left is more, it was until Trump came along, more pro-tariff, more pro-protectionism than the right was. Um, So the idea that all of a sudden when Trump becomes protectionist, embraces protectionism as president, the left suddenly hates him for it, is a really hard thing to buy. Similarly, with the sort of closing of military bases, I don't really remember what, you know, bases he's talking about um, abroad, but uh, probably with some sleep I could remember. But again, if you were paying attention, say, during uh, the George W. Bush presidency, the idea that this, this policy... You know, the party that loved Edward Snowden hates Trump for being more non-interventionist than the perfidious neocons. It's just rigorous. Now, the immigration stuff, sure, there's some reason to believe that the left really doesn't like Trump's nativism. Yes, the Trump doesn't like the best version of Trump's immigration policies, but also doesn't like the way he talks about immigration, right? This is the thing that so many of these, these people can't get their heads around, is that there are perfectly serviceable reasons that don't have to do with a threat to the globalist leftist regime to dislike Donald Trump. He's a pig. He's, he's anti-intellectual, crude, disloyal, boorish jackass. And his view of America is that there's nothing special about the American founding or American principles. Yes, If you want to believe, you can go find his speeches where he says wonderful things about all of it. But if you actually go and look at the interviews that he gives when he actually talks about America off the cuff, off the top of his head, he thinks we're suckers for being the leader of the free world. He thinks the Constitution is sort of an inconvenience and an impediment. He has no, he has a thumbless grasp on all the things that make this a great country. He's a voluptuary of power who likes dictators and he's he's garish. Anyway, so the idea that like somehow... This is all about, you know, the, the people who dislike Trump dislike him because of his threat to the globalist order. Um, it's just a self-serving thing. And, but this, the, the dangerous self-serving part of it is that it gives you permission to think that the worst parts about Trump are ideologically required, right? I mean, it's, you, could, you could have written the same piece instead of writing about Vlad the Impaler, you could have written it about Lenin and his willingness to hang kulaks just to send a message. This sort of thinking is grotesque. And you see it just all over the place these days. And I think it's bad for people's souls. You know, if you, if, if you go back and you read, you know, the arguments in favor of Mussolini or Stalin or Hitler in the American press from the 1920s and 1930s, you can see how it was bad for those people's souls, for those people's character. And it, this catastrophization of American life is required to justify overlooking all sorts of things that's, that you know define what it means to be a conservative, a citizen, however you want to put it. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The second you give up on the idea that, that there are limiting principles that bound and constrain your principles, it turns out you just don't have principles at all. You know, so like, uh, you know, J.D. Vance, you know, and you should check out Noah Rothman's piece on this at, the, at, at NR. J.D. Vance is starting to extol the Swedish healthcare model because, uh, you know, and his gateway drug into sort of Bernie Sandersism on healthcare is the fact that Sweden is skeptical about giving hormone blockers to young trans kids. Now, I agree with Sweden's policy. I just talked about this with Christine Rosen, you know, uh, yesterday. Was it yesterday? I guess it was yesterday. Oh, no, two days ago. So I, I, get, I, get, I get no problem saying the Swedes have gotten it right, the Finns have gotten it right, the French have gotten it right, the English have gotten it right. But that doesn't mean that somehow, because the Swedes got it right, and he has this line, let me see if I can find it. I had it open um, this morning. He says, one thing, Ameri-, this is J.D. Vance talking, one thing, one thing Americans of good sense should try to understand is why public health is so much better in Sweden than our own country. And he was citing some government agency study recommending hormone treatment for children um, only as part of clinical trials, blah, 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 blah. He says, from COVID to mass dysphoria, there's, so, there's much less hysteria and much less groupthink over there. Now, the idea that somehow Sweden's healthcare system is preferable to our own is a very old one. There are a handful of good arguments on its side. Um, certainly, if you value things like egalitarianism, there are also a lot of bad arguments on its side, but none of the arguments all of a sudden become persuasive because of Sweden's policy about trans kids. And the idea that somehow the United States, which has um, a flawed healthcare system with some really exceptional things to it that are really wonderful and great, and that our healthcare system in the United States in a, in a country of 330 million people probably, as a matter of math, simply cannot be like Sweden's healthcare system. But just going around picking and choosing foreign systems, foreign cultures, um, and extolling them as somehow models for us because there's one data point that you agree with 
it is a really common thing these days. You know, it's why people are constantly pointing at Hungary and saying it proves that we can do this and we can do that. It really doesn't. Hungary's a country of 10 million people. Sweden's a country of 10 million people. Ethnically homogenous countries um, with uh, different economies, different cultures. They're just not going to be, you know, incredibly powerful models for um, a country like the United States. And, you know, we used to understand this point in terms of American exceptionalism, that there are just some things that, don't, that Americans don't like, won't work here anyway, um, and cannot be scaled even if um, Americans did like them. Anyway, it's just there's this kind of stuff um, all over the place where people will, you know, abandon their conservative positions because they're just simply attracted to the idea of the blunt use of power, that if they have power in their hands, if their team is in control, then there shouldn't be, you know, impediments of principle to what they want to do. And that's bad enough. It's so much worse when you see these young kids convincing themselves that it's cool and transgressive and, and, and rebellious to just be jerks for its own sake. Every time I talk about this stuff or write about this stuff, you know, the, the little kids have a field day, you know, insulting me and congratulating themselves on the fact that I don't get it and that they do and all that kind of stuff. And all I can say is, uh, I get it. And I just think these kids are acting like idiots and it's bad for them. Um, and I'm not even talking about the kids, like these kids at the periphery who are just sort of straight up, you know, racists, misogynists. There was this thing yesterday. It was amazing. Um, where is it? Uh, this guy, Jason Hart uncovered, you know, as part of his thing about this, this bull moose project, he uncovered this thing that one of the participants in this thing that Heritage Heritage is one of the sponsors of was this thing that used to be the American um, Populist Union and is now called American Virtue. And like one of the directors of it is just a straight up bigot and sort of bizarre, bizarrely intense misogynist in terms of his hatred of women, um, at least in terms of the stuff that he tweeted. I'm not going to give you um, the whole, I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but if you want to see it, you can, we'll put a link in the show notes. The funny thing about the Bull Moose Project is like, so first of all, you know, the Bull Moose Party was simply the popular name for the Progressive Party. And the Progressive Party, which it was got named the Bull Moose Party because Teddy Roosevelt said, I feel as healthy as a bull moose or something like that. And so when he ran as the spoiler candidate for the Bull Moose Party, I'm sorry, the Progressive Party, they called it the Bull Moose Party in 1912, um, and it was TR's refusal to be a loyal Republican that got Woodrow Wilson elected in 1912. Because, you know, this is the, 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 the classic example of the Richard Hofstetter third parties are like bees. They have their effect by stinging and then they die thing. TR siphoned off massive amounts of votes from Taft. In fact, he, he, he won more um, votes than Taft, at least in a lot of states. Anyway, so like the first thing is why the Heritage Foundation is supporting a bunch of kids who are all in on the model of the Progressive Party in 1912 is kind of a, a mystery if you're actually trying to like 
think it through rationally. I think the real reason is that Kevin Roberts and these guys at Heritage have have made some terrible, terrible, terrible decisions about what to do with Heritage and what to do to the conservative movement. And I think it's kind of tragic. But it was funny. So I got into a thing about this. I I was making fun of this on Twitter. And um, this guy, I can't remember his name, who I think he's the head of the New York Republican, young Republican thing, started, you know, going after me for it, saying that the Bull Moose Party wasn't the spoiler. Taft was because Taft got fewer votes than TR or something like that. And that Taft should have just stepped aside. What I think is just sort of hilarious about that is like, so you got some kid who runs something that is supposed to be a Republican organization um, with deep roots in the Republican Party going back to Lincoln, at least as an institution, just openly confessing he's a rhino, um, literally a rhino, in the sense that he thinks that uh, the progressive party deserved to win in 1912 over Taft, who was, you know, not only a Republican, but, uh, you know, a part of a great conservative dynasty of Republicans. And then there's the fact that because so many of these kids have like the memories of fruit flies, the last president, the last Republican to like openly model himself in a serious way on Teddy Roosevelt was John McCain. There was this whole bull moose project and he was he was the TR candidate and he was going to take on the trusts like TR did and yada, 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 yada. And like the idea that somehow the the real conservatives, the, the real principled people are the ones who essentially are stands for the the progressive party of 1912 and John McCain, I just think is funny. But it's, it's also just a sign of the sort of, not only sort of historical ignorance and intellectual unseriousness of these people, but just sort of this idea of taking ideas that seem rebellious, radical, transgressive, whatever, and weaponizing them as, and thinking that that will, that if, you, if you're particularly thuggish about it, you'll win arguments um, without actually having to deploy reason or anything. What else? So... Uh, again, I apologize for my generally soporific and um, somewhat despairing tone. I'm just really tired. So there's this other story that I have to figure out how out. I'm not. I'm outraged by it in principle. Uh, I just need to do more reading to figure out whether or not it's some very minor thing, or if it's camel's nose under the tent thing, or if it's actually as horrible as some people are telling me. But like, apparently, the Biden administration is promulgating some new rule that says the better your credit rating, the more fees you pay on mortgages so that you can help subsidize people with bad credit ratings, get mortgages. And like, I get the desire to help people um, get into home ownership. Though Lord knows uh, being too aggressive about that has created some financial problems for this country not too long ago. Um, there's a lot of moral hazard in trying to goose or gainsay the, the, the banking industry and the housing industry um, in favor of home ownership for people who cannot be expected under traditional you know, rules to be able to make their mortgages. It's just, it's, it's a fraught and a dangerous thing to do. But anyway, apparently there's this rule that's coming out that if you have a good credit score, you pay more fees um, on closing to get your mortgage so that the 
people with bad credit scores can have their mortgages subsidized um, or the cost of getting a mortgage offset. Again, I need to know more about it, but just as a top line sort of philosophical thing, that's grotesque. It's just grotesque. If you want to charge rich people, if you want to tax rich people to help poor people get homes, that's just, you know, look, I mean, I'll probably disagree with you depending on you know, what the proposal looks at, but that's what we do in this country, right? We have a very progressive tax system. Um, um, the more you make, the more taxes you pay. Uh, in fact, if you look at, there are a lot, uh, there's a lot of data that shows that if you, um, if you take all taxes, state, local, federal combined, um, our tax system is, is in some ways more progressive than some Scandinavian tax systems. Um, and, uh, because Scandinavian tax systems, like European tax systems, tax systems generally, um, rely on taxing the middle class a lot. Uh, we tend to tax the rich a lot in this country. Um, which is one of the reasons why uh, I loathe, Biden says it all the time. Democrats say it all the time. Some Republicans are starting to say it too, you know, but like this, it's not just that they say, if we can just get the wealthy to, to, to pay their fair share, it's that they always say, if we can get the wealthy to start paying their fair share, as if um, it's like, it never, like, no matter how many times they increase taxes um, on top earners, um, it always starts over at zero that they're still not paying anything, that they're not paying their fair share and all that. Um, and it's just sort of, a, it's intellectually dishonest. I'm not sitting here saying, you know, um, that we can't have a progressive tax system or that, or that rich people shouldn't pay taxes. Of course they should, but you know, there's this idea that somehow all the things that we lack for in this country could be paid for if we just taxed the rich people um, a fair amount. And it's just, it's just mathematically garbage. You know, Brian Riedel has been on here um, a half dozen times. And every time he comes on, I ask him the same question because I just think it's, even though I know the answer, um, I think it's just really important for people to hear again and again and again. And that's that the, you could confiscate a hundred percent of the wealth of the top 1% and it wouldn't pay for, you know, Medicare for all or the green new deal or anything like that. And, um, and even if you, you know, and, and there are all sorts of reasons why you can't confiscate wealth, not just constitutional ones. Um, because the more draconian your attempts at, at seizing, uh, revenue from people, the more they'll change their behavior and hide their wealth and stop working and so, like, you know, the the paper value of how rich the top 1% are is contingent on the premise that the government isn't actually going to seize all of it. If we knew that in six months the government was going to seize all the wealth of the top 1%, you would see the value of the assets of the top 1% plummet as they tried to, you know, move money around into safe havens, uh, sell assets that were easily gotten um, in favor of buying assets that were harder to confiscate. Uh, you know, people respond to tax. Um, they respond to sort of tax incentives in ways that make sort of a lot of the glib talk we have about getting more money out of people um, kind of ridiculous. But anyway, we have a progressive tax system. How did I even get on? Oh, so like this mortgage thing. 
um, like if you want to help poor people in some way, just be transparent about it. Just be like, you know, here's what we're doing. We're going to have this subsidy or we're going to do these transfer payments or we're going to get rid of this tax. That's all fine. But when you start penalizing people for having good bourgeois habits about like maintaining good credit, about paying their bills on time, if you start making that something that costs you rather than rewards you, um, you're going to get all sorts of distortions um, and perverse incentives out there. It's just immoral. Um, now again, I, 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 I need to know more about the specifics of this. I can, I can tell people are getting super worked up about it. You can tell I am. If it's as bad as, as some people are saying, then it's really, really bad. Um, it's certainly philosophically bad. It's just really terrible to, to charge, to, to tax people, to tax socially beneficial and objectively virtuous behavior in order to reward people who have uh, socially deleterious and less than virtuous behavior is just sort of the definition of bad policy making. I want to just come back to this Vlad the, the Impaler thing for just one last second and not to get into the details of, of that again, but like there's this thing that's been in my head for a while now. It's, it just, it's bothering me. As, as you may have noticed, I like analogies um, and metaphors um, and two are not the same thing. Um, and I get that I make wild goofball analogies all the time and that's fine. I think people understand you know, that's what I am doing. Um, but, you know, like on this Vlad the Impaler thing, they're just, a, they're a large number of people who think they're making meaningful historical analogies when at best what they're really doing is just sort of making, uh, offering a metaphor. And I, I don't necessarily mean this in terms of like the technical definitions of metaphors and analogies. So, I mean, like technically a metaphor, you know, analogies when you use like or as, when you, make the comparison explicit. A metaphor is where it's symbolic and the like or as are sort of implied. Um, you are a beautiful flower, right? I mean, I'm speaking metaphorically. You're like a beautiful flower in that you um, shine brightest when you're in the sun is an analogy, right? And um, the, what I'm getting at though is that a lot of these historical analogies that you're finding all over the place, they give the pretense of substantive similarity, right? So the idea that like American domestic politics uh, is similar in any meaningful way to 15th century, you know, Vladimir Paler was born in 1431, okay, so Vladimir Barrow was born in 1431. He dies in 1476. The idea that American domestic politics are anything like Romania in the 1400s is just ludicrous, right? I mean, it's just ludicrous on its face. People are dying of diseases. Child mortality rates are probably through the roof. Uh, women dying in childbirth are probably through the roof. Uh, life expectancy is short. You got... Ottomans coming in, trying to impose a foreign religion on you, no running water, 
every, every, obviously everything is just nothing like today in any meaningful way. There's no democracy. There's no this, there's no that. And so in an analogy is you're actually trying to like say two things are actually really similar, right? And there's nothing similar about America today and Romania 600 years ago or 500 years ago. There's nothing, there's nothing similar, almost nothing similar today about America today and Romania today. Never mind America today or Romania a half millennia ago. And these analogies, like the analogies to ancient Rome and all this kind of stuff. Look, I, I love historical analogies. I love all of this stuff. But you get the sense that some people are convincing themselves that these similarities aren't just sort of useful ways to illustrate a point um, in a metaphorical way or in a literary way, but that they're actually similar, right? That they're actually, um, we're in a similar situation to what the Romanians were in, you know, in, 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 the, 15, in the 1400s. And you, I find this kind of stuff all over the place. And, and so I, I kind of don't mind, and obviously I don't mind this kind of writing, this kind of talking, as a way to make for interesting writing. Um, but if you actually think that like, you know, we're in, in a pre-revolutionary period, like some people talk about how America is sort of like just before the Bolshevik revolution kind of thing. If you actually think these analogies have heft to them and that we can um, understand today by understanding the maneuverings of various elite factions in anti-democratic, undemocratic, pre-democratic societies, um, then you're just giving yourself permission to see the society that you live in as somehow illegitimate and worthy of being overthrown. And, um, and I just think it's a dangerous way to think about things. You know, it's a dangerous way to sort of indoctrinate young people into how they see their own country. Anyway, I just want to get that off my head. I'll do a better job explaining it later after I get to think it through a little bit. I guess some quick rank punditry and then I'm going to go. Uh, I think all of this stuff about uh, DeSantis's campaign imploding is way overdone. Um, as I pointed out on the Dispatch podcast uh, yesterday, you know, I think I was the first columnist or one of the first columnists to say that DeSantis could end up being like Scott Walker. Um, one of these guys who sort of had the sweet spot about where the Republican Party was and then um, sputtered out once he got the nomination, or not once he got into the race. Um, still think that's possible. Still think it's possible that he gets the nomination. You know, this, this uh, hyper-focus on the moment and on the daily or weekly or hourly news cycle, I think misleads a lot of people. Um and uh, the guy hasn't even announced yet. And um, people are, you know, saying, you know, he's blown it. And I just, I, hold your horses, keep your powder dry. It's going to be a long race. There are going to be a lot of ups and downs. Trump is going to look like he's a lock and he's going to look like he's toast three times before we figure out what the actual outcome of all this is going to be. And I just think that like this entire conversation about the presidential primaries is being conducted by maybe one, 2% of the country right now. Most people aren't paying very much attention to any of this. And once tens of millions of people start paying attention, uh, 
polls will change, politics will change, fundraising will change, uh, coverage will change. So just, you know, have a little patience. I do find, though, this tendency by, you know, look, I've been pretty open about this. I think Republicans should have dumped Trump a long, long time ago, all that kind of stuff. And so it should be no surprise that I think Republicans should be um, more forceful and open in their criticisms of of Trump, if they particularly if they want um, to beat him for the nomination. Um, I'm not a huge Chris Christie guy, but I think he's generally right that you gotta you gotta take the guy head on if you want to beat the guy. You can't pussyfoot and and mutter about you know how you're better and then sing Donald Trump's praises. But um, that's it. I just still find it something sort of weirdly pathetic about um, the way so many of these candidates are um, doing these sort of bank shot criticisms of Trump. I mean, the latest one, um, my colleague Andrew Egger keeps track of all this stuff. Um, we talk about it in Slack. But um, yesterday... Um, the was it the Susan B. Anthony um, list? Uh, major pro-life organization said that they won't support any candidate who doesn't at least support a 15-week uh, national limit on abortions. You know, a 15-week ban um, on abortions nationwide. Now, I actually disagree with their their logic in all of this and their constitutional argument and and all that. But you know they're definitely principled pro-life people and they're entitled to their position and their, their opinions. Um, and they directly criticized Trump for it. Now, so Mike Pence comes out praising the people criticizing Trump and praising their principled stand, but not actually criticizing Trump himself. And uh, this, there's just a lot of beta male behavior out there where everyone's, so deferential to Trump, I get it. You know, there's this part of the electorate that is so married to the, this cult of personality thing for Trump and you don't want to piss off those people, but you're not going to get those people anyway. The people who's like, you know, when Trump's support in the polls goes up and down based upon whether or not he was indicted and all that kind of stuff, a lot of those people, those are voter, those are gettable voters because what they're really saying is that they don't like the media beating up on Trump or they don't like Democrats or they're not going to give people the satisfaction to say that they're um, that they don't like Trump. But that is if that is soft support. Right. There is something else going on there. If you were saying that you don't want Trump and then all of a sudden he gets indicted and now you're saying you do want Trump. Right. Um, those voters are gettable, but you have to make the case to them um, for why they're, you know, on again, off again, support for Trump should stay on the off button. And um, um, and when you actually look at the poll numbers, when you actually look at the surveys of like how many people are truly diehard Trump supporters, um, most of the Republican Party isn't part of that sort of MAGA base. And it seems to me, you know, like I think the Lincoln Project is garbage. Um, it's basically a democratic super PAC. I think a lot of these, um, anti-Trump 
Um, Republican organizations have been tactically, have been financially brilliant and tactically um, ham-fisted uh, and, you know, great at raising money off of Nicole Wallace, off of commercials on Nicole, Wall- Nicole Wallace's show on MSNBC, but really, really terrible at convincing Republicans to turn their back on Trump. But, you know, I think you could make an argument for just a sort of quiet, professional Republican organization that just simply had a really good data analytic and political mobilization program for getting the normals to show up in primary in the first few primaries, right? I'm not talking about, you know, you know, some grand principles first kind of argument, even though I agree with the principles first kind of arguments and all that kind of stuff. All I'm talking about is like figuring out who those Republicans are. We must have the data somewhere that data exists, right? Who, um, don't want to vote for Trump, want the Republican party to be normal again, want the Republican party to be a reasonable, principled, right of center conservative party that actually cares about public policy and character and all that kind of stuff, right? Those voters exist. The problem with the, you know, Lord knows everybody out there knows I have problems with the primaries, but the primaries, the only way you're, you can't, since we can't get rid of the primaries, which I wish we could, at least we can't get rid of them anytime soon. The way you solve the problem of the sort of in, insane MAGA rights dominance of the Republican primaries is just simply to expand the number of voters who aren't part of that cohort. I'm not, you know, I talked about Burke before, you know, the, 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 the core point of the, all that is necessary for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing is, is fitting a little bit here insofar as the normals have the numbers. But one of the things, one of the byproducts of being normal is that you're not super invested in, in, you know, primary politics and all that kind of stuff. You don't engage in, t- in the politics stuff until after Labor Day or whatever. You know, part of being normal is not being super online and super political. And under normal circumstances, I would hate the idea of let's politicize the normals. But I'm not talking about like starting some mass movement or anything like that. I'm just saying if I were a big donor type um, if I were, you know, unfortunately, Rona McDaniel is not trustworthy on this kind of stuff. But if I were actually someone who cared about the long-term prospects of the Republican Party and by extension, the long-term prospects for conservatism in the country, I would quietly just get the lists together and target the, you know, the 60% of the Republican electorate that doesn't want to see us go through this crap again doesn't want to see a Republican, doesn't want to see Trump as the nominee and doesn't want to see Trump lose to Joe Biden and simply turn out that vote. The second you start doing it in favor of one candidate or another, it becomes a different kind of operation um, and kind of an in-kind contribution to one candidate and uh, probably arouses all sorts of legal issues. But if it was just sort of a quiet kind of, they're taking your party away, the only way you can stop it is to show up and vote for a normal person. Um, I don't think that has to be the actual text. That's just the subtext. That's one way, you know, I, 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 I don't like giving advice, you know, political advice to politicians. It's not the game I'm in, but it just sort of seems like 
something to think about because if, if the primaries aren't going away, then you got to figure out how um, you can use the existing primaries, the existing primary system for the betterment of the party and the country. You know, when I say we should get rid of primaries, people say, oh, you don't like democracy. Nah. And we don't need to revisit all that. But yeah, I don't think institutions need to be internally democratic to be in service of democracy. Democracy is what happens between the parties. But if you're all bought into this idea that democracy is everything and the primaries are vital and all that kind of stuff, what's your objection to bringing in, to turning up the, the turnout for, for primaries? So go ahead and do it. Don't see how it would make things worse. Anyway, uh, looking forward to our event on May 1st at, at AI, um, the special remnant with me, Steve, and Chris Starwalt. And uh, we'll talk about all the Fox stuff, which I didn't talk about at all today. And we've just announced a dispatch meetup in Houston. If you're a dispatch subscriber, you've probably gotten the email already. Um, but it's going to be, uh, let's see, this is the opening from the email. Come meet Steve, Sarah, and Jonah and fellow members of the dispatch community at Hotel Zaza ooh, in Houston for an informal meet and greet gathering at 6 p.m. Central Time on June 13th, 2023. Each guest will get a two will get two drink tickets on us, and apparently we're going to do a panel and then hang out and and drink and schmooze afterwards. If you're a member, you can um, invite non-members to come, but the only way you can get in is either you're invited by a non-member or you become a member. Uh, and I think we have a similar announcement in the morning dispatch today, but you'll see others. These meetups are fun. Uh, they're more fun and they're they're wildly better attended than I would have anticipated. Um, so if you can make it, that would be great. And check out, oh, Adam always, is always asking me to say this. Check out the uh, Dispatch Podcast YouTube channel where you can see how tired I really am. Um, and, uh, and all sorts of actually more entertaining stuff. So with that, uh, thanks for listening. And again, apologies for me being exhausted. And I'll talk to you next time.